When I was in junior high, I had a t-shirt and it had this print, it looked like it was all in flames and it said, if you died today, where would you go? And on the back was quoted Revelation 21.8, which basically says people that do evil things go to the lake that burns with sulfur where bad things happen for eternity. And one time somebody had said, that's really kind of sick and twisted. And I thought, well, it's the truth. But what I think is odd is this unbalanced perspective that we get. And the way that the pendulum swings from side to side. But we get this unbalanced perspective because what I realized was later, several years later as I was reading through Revelation, I realized that in chapter 1, those first eight verses... Seven of those eight are talking about how glorious and awesome heaven is. And then there's one verse about hell. And what's interesting to me is the way that often we reflect that same lack of balance, where we put all of our focus and all of our attention on that one verse and fail to look at the seven before it and fail to talk about how awesome heaven is. And I think that we have this pendulum swing, and I want to be honest and say sometimes the pendulum swings the other way, and all it does is look at grace and God's love in a, I think, a twisted way, but, and it's all about heaven and all about grace and that everybody makes it so it doesn't really matter how you live anyway. The, the pendulum swings both ways, but I think that at least For most of us, the struggle that we have would be to have that focus on everything about verse 8, that type of negative focus. We've seen people go through, and they've gotten on their soapbox, and they've railed on the pulpits and pounded on the pulpits over the negative sections of Scripture, and all of the judgment that's coming, and, and it's in an effort to condemn the culture. And maybe for some of you, you felt like last week was one of those sermons. The good news is I don't have steel-toed boots on this week. I, I was really excited about this section that we're going to look at today until I started studying it this week. The bad news is I probably should have worn my steel-toed boots because This is one of those where several weeks ago I thought, hey, we're going to be able to have some of that balance. This is part of why I like working through books of the Bible, because you find that balance that is in Scripture. It's hard to get unbalanced when you're actually working through Scripture rather than just jumping around picking certain parts that you want to talk about. And so I was excited, but it's been a rough week. But I want to focus for a moment. Last week was a lot of things of not to do. He said, since you've been raised with Christ, put these lifestyles behind you. And he hits on sexual immorality and purity and lust and passion and all of those. And then he starts talking about sins of the mouth, anger and gossip and wrath and slander and malicious talk and lying. But there was a lesson I learned this year, and I I think it helps us. As I was helping coach wrestling a little bit, there was one of the meets where I was yelling at somebody, and I think I yelled, don't lock your hands, which is, in certain parts of wrestling, is illegal. And Brad, the wrestling, the head coach, said, don't tell them what not to do, tell them what to do. 
But we know that's how it is, right? If we spend all of our energy focusing on don't do this, 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 we inevitably end up doing that because that's where we're looking and that's where we're focused. And sometimes it helps. We need to focus on what we do need to do. And so Colossians 3, 5 through 11 is one of those do not sections. But I think it's important for a couple of reasons, and I'm going to try to paint this picture with a couple images to maybe help us get it. The first is it's important because if you are to buy a house that needs completely gutted and remodeled, you can't make that house livable without removing the old, bad, nasty portions of that house. You can't hang new drywall in a house full of moldy drywall and make the house a good, livable, healthy house. You have to strip out and remove the nastiness that is in there. And I think that that's the same thing that we see here with Paul. It's not an effort to have a lack of balance. It's an effort to say, if you're going to live the life that honors God, you have to get rid of this nasty behavior in your life. The other image that I think helps us too is that image of weeding a garden. I am like the world's worst gardener. And typically what happens is after a long time of neglecting the garden, I have to go in with a mower and a weed eater and a shovel and dig out all of the weeds. And there's a lot of time and energy focused in this really small garden on getting rid of the weeds because they are not maintained. But we also know that if we maintain our garden, that we can focus more on the plants than on the weeds. But we don't know what weeds to get if we don't know what is a weed. Because a tulip in your tomato garden would be a weed. And you would have to get it out. And so what Paul does here in these verses 5 through 11 is he lays out those things that need to be removed so that we can focus on the things that matter. It may be another picture is when we try to get those things that matter, but we don't get rid of the things that are corrupting us. It's like those junior high boys that come home from ball practice and they don't think they need a shower because they have a spray bottle of Axe in their bedroom. It doesn't make them smell better. It's just spraying more smelliness on their nastiness. But sometimes that's what we try to do with our faith. And so I think that is why those previous verses that we looked at are important. But this morning... We're moving on to verses 12 through 17 of chapter 3. It's page 984 in the Pew Bibles. We are going to back up and look at verse 1, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, because we need to set the stage, because the focus shifts to do this. Last week was get rid of these behaviors. This week is focus on these behaviors. N.T. Wright points out that it's the same motivation that prompts the Christian to abandon the old ways of life, encourages them to embrace the new ways of life. Again, think of that remodeling an old house. You remodel an old house, you strip out the old stuff because you want it to be livable. You want it to be valuable, and so you strip out the old, but it's that same motivation of it being livable and valuable and healthy that caused you to refinish it. So we're gonna read verses one through three and then jump down to 12 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, and remember he's already established that when we were baptized, we were buried with him and raised with him 
So it's understood that this if is true if you are a Christian. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of earth. For you have died, and your old life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has also forgiven, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's interesting because in this, in verse 12, he, he, Paul references a few titles. He says that as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, those three characteristics he uses to describe the Christian. What's interesting, those, all three of those were used to describe Israel, and more completely, they were used to describe Christ. In 1 Peter 2, 4, and 6, he's talked about being the chosen one. And we know that Israel was God's chosen people. And and then in Mark 1 and John 6 and several others, all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as holy. And then in Matthew 3, 17, as Jesus is baptized, God speaks and says, this is my beloved son, And what's interesting is Paul is saying again, your life is hidden when in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And those characteristics that are true of him are true of you. Just like if we see somebody, if somebody is hiding well, you don't see them. You see whatever it is they're hiding in. And Paul says, you are hidden in Christ. When people look at you, they should see Christ, holiness, and chosenness. And so then he lays out some of these characteristics of the new life. He covered the old life and some of the new life of being hidden with Christ in God. I also want to point out, I missed this, I meant to cover this too, verse 10. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. As we grow in the knowledge of God, which Paul prays about, don't lose focus of that prayer in chapter one, because we see that theme continue to show up. As we grow in the knowledge of our creator, Paul has established that Jesus was the creator later in chapter one. As we grow in our knowledge of him, we also grow in his image. And part of that growing in his image is reflecting these characteristics. And so the first one that Paul points out is to be compassionate, have compassionate hearts. 
I think that's fairly understandable. We don't have to spend a lot of time unpacking that. And then he goes on to being kind, have kindness. This also sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The next one he points out is humility. And remember, anytime we talk about humility, it's important to remember Philippians 2. Philippians 2 sets the stage and the model and the standard for humility. Though Christ was God, he did not consider that equality with God as something to cling to, but he gave up his rights and his freedoms and humbled himself and became a man in order that we could have life. And then he says meekness, that, that's one of those beatitudes. I think this is a word that we really struggle to understand. I think several of these we struggle to grasp in our culture. N.T. Wright points out that this meekness is the result of humility and the way that it impacts our attitude and our approach to people. It's the antonym to arrogance and an attitude and an approach to people. And then patience, which is our reaction and response to other people based on that humility. Because when we're humble, it's hard to not be meek. And when we're humble, it's hard to not be patient. Because anything that tries our patience, we realize that we too have been guilty of that or worse. And that humility brings about both of these. I think it's interesting because he, he tags patience along with that qualifier of bearing with one another. And it carries this sense of expecting difficulties to arise. And it's as if Paul knew that there might be a chance that the people of God, the church gathered together, might face some personality conflicts. Now, I don't know what would give Paul that idea because none of us have ever seen that happen within the church because the church doesn't act like that. We never have personality conflicts, but what Paul says is bear with one another. Endure through those difficulties that you're going to face with patience and meekness and humility. One of the things that I think is interesting is the way in which all of these build on the others. And when you have one of these, it really contributes to the next one. And it's really hard to not love people when we're doing that. But it's possible. But our patience and our meekness and our humility and our kindness and our compassion all strengthen each other. And so then he moves on to a couple more traits that seem to be highlighted a little bit more. The first one, forgiving one another. If, if anyone does something to offend you, forgive them. And, and notice the way he says that. In verse 13, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive one another. This isn't just a forgive if you feel like it. This isn't just a forgive if they've paid their penance. This is forgive them as God has forgiven you which requires nothing. You don't forgive them if they apologize. You don't forgive them if they make it right. You forgive them as God has forgiven you. If you make people repay you before you forgive them, how would that work out for you if God made you repay him your debts before he forgives you? 
As God has forgiven you through Christ, you are to forgive others. N.T. Wright had a comment on this that I just thought was relevant to share. He said, first, it is utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy and release of being forgiven to refuse to share that blessing with another. It is utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy and release of being forgiven to refuse to share that, forgive, that blessing with another. Secondly, it is highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one whom Christ himself has already forgiven. Sorry, that isn't bigger. Think about that. When we refuse to forgive people, we are saying that our opinion of people is more important than Christ's. Now, I will say that Paul seems to assume that this is directed towards Christians forgiving one another. I think it revolves to other people too. But even within the church, we see people who struggle to forgive others in the church. And if we truly cling to the grace of God and believe that we are forgiven and others are forgiven, then what we're saying is our attitude and their grievances toward us are more important than their grievances toward God. Because Christ has forgiven them. He, he can forgive them, but I'm not going to. I'm more important. It's highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one whom Christ himself has already forgiven. Above all, put on love. I am convinced that love is the single most important trait in the Christian life. In fact, I would go as far as to say that I am 99.9% .9 certain that we can't call ourselves Christians if we don't love. I, I'm pretty convinced that you cannot fail to love people and truly be a Christian. Jesus, or God, through John, says that in 1 John. How can you claim to love God whom you cannot see when you don't love people whom you can see? If you claim to love God, but you don't love your brother or sister, you are nothing but a liar. By the way, Revelation 21.8 says liars go to hell. If you really want to know the short version of that verse. And John says, if you claim to love God but don't love people, you are a liar. John also wrote Revelation 21.8. So it sounds like John is saying, if you claim to love God and don't love people, you are a liar. And if you are a liar, liars go to hell. So if you claim to love God and don't love people, there's no part for you in the kingdom. We have to love above all. Love each other. I don't think we can be Christians apart from loving people. Now, I want to say that that is done imperfectly, and it's done with bumps and potholes and craters in the road as we go. That's understood. It's not easy to love people. It's really hard to love people that you're trying to work on forgiving. And there is grace from God in there, but there's a difference between trying to love people and striving to love people and saying, I don't care. They've burned me too many times. They can go to hell as far as I'm concerned. Now, why some of us would say we would never dare say that, sometimes that's exactly what our attitude says.
it's a discussion that we can have another time as far as the love because I could go on and on and on and I realize that I've belabored it. If you want to know more about why I say that, talk to me sometime and we'll grab coffee and you can listen to me go on for hours about why I think it is impossible to claim to love Jesus and be a Christian and be covered by his grace and not love people. I'm convinced of it. And the more I read scripture, the more I am convinced of that truth. And notice though what he says about love. He says it binds everything together in perfect harmony. Literally that, that phrase is the bond of perfection, love, which is the bond of perfection. And so there is question among those who translate what is everything? Because it doesn't say everyone. It doesn't say all of us. It says everything. And so some say that that everything, that love bonds all of those characteristics together. The compassion and the kindness and the humility and the meekness and the patience. Some say it is about the church because, it, again, it's ambiguous. The bond of perfection. Love is the bond of perfection. Which allows all things to dwell in peace. This is one of those where I have trouble thinking that it's both, or thinking that it's one or the other. I really tend to think that it's both, not because it's the easy out, but because if we are bound to these traits, and if we are committed to compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, is it not easier to get along? Does it not make people live more harmoniously and united with each other if we are compassionate and we are kind and we are humble and we are meek and we are patient? At the same time, love makes those traits a lot easier. Those traits can be done apart from love, but I don't think they can truly be done apart from love. I, I think that they fail to hold up they're just a perversion of what they should be. Because have you ever seen people try to be compassionate and they try to do something nice for somebody, but they're lacking love in it and it looks more like they're doing a favor for themselves and it's just a handout and they're looking down on people as they're helping them rather than being compassionate all of that to say that I believe that a life with Jesus at the center reflects his love. If you are going to live a life that has Jesus at the center, it will reflect his love. And if you want to explore this some, get a pen of some sort. I typically use a red pen. And as you read through scripture, every time you see the word love, put a red box around it. And pay attention to how often that word shows up and how often it's directed toward us. The fruit of the Spirit, first one, love. 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 12 is about the church. Chapter 14 is about the church. 13, about love. I believe that it's in between those two sections about the church because it's saying that the church functions best when love is at the middle. I believe that Paul is saying that love is the ultimate test of the Holy Spirit. Do you want to know if you have the Holy Spirit? Look at your love. How well do you love? Do you think Jesus is at the center of your life? How well do you love? As much as we need to put death, put to death the qualities of our old life, 
we need to put even more effort into pursuing the characteristics of the new life. The reason that I realized that I may need my steel toes is because the more I studied this this week, the more I was convicted about my inadequacy. My inadequacy to be compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient and forgiving and loving. Last week I made the statement that we cannot seek the sins that Paul lists and the things that are above. Remember verse, verses one through three, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above. We cannot seek those things and pursue those sins that he lists. We cannot seek the things that are above as we are buried in sexual immorality and impurity. We cannot seek the things that are above when we are surrounded by malicious talk and gossip and slander and anger and wrath. Because we will love one and hate the other or we'll be devoted to one and despise, despise the other. But I think the same thing is true about these qualities. I really think that Paul is saying these qualities are those things that are above that you're to set your minds on and to pursue. But what is incredible to me is that if we are pursuing these and if we are pursuing Christ and we are devoted to compassion, kindness, humility, and patience, and meekness, we will despise anger and wrath and malice and slander and sexual immorality. We cannot be pursuing these things that are above without walking away from the things that are behind us. You cannot seek the new life and the old life simultaneously. There are opposite ends of the journey. And so if you set your eyes on one and strive toward it, you'll leave the others behind. But knowing what those others look like as you're traveling that path and you see those weeds popping up in the path, you can pull those out and get rid of them as you see them. We cannot reflect the love of Christ while we are immersed in those behaviors of the old life. And we cannot reflect the love of Christ and not be compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient. You can't be loving like Christ and have the world's shortest fuse. You can't have the love of Christ and talk badly about people behind their backs all the time. I think that that is why Paul sets the standard for leaders in the church that he does. Because what we see, one of the things that I found interesting is you read through these traits that he says Christians are to have, most of them are similar to the traits that he calls for in the leaders of the church. Which makes sense, right? If you're expected to have these characteristics in your life as a Christian, how much more as a leader who James says will be judged more strictly. Mark Scott said, I can't judge a person's heart, meaning their motives, but I can be a fruit inspector. We can't judge people's motives when they do things, but what we can do is look at the fruit of their life. We can see that fruit. Because what happens is our lives produce the fruit of the root that is in our heart. Which is why those things can't coexist. Because if in our heart 
is a root of bitterness and slander in the old life. We can't produce the fruit of the new life. And so as much as we want to stand up and call sin, sin, we need to spend more time holding each other accountable to the standard of new life set forth by Paul. In fact, I think scripture sets the precedent that if we want to stand up and rail against sin, we should, but it's not the sin of the culture, it's the sin of the church. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul addresses that. They have a guy in their church that under the guise of grace, he was saved by grace so he could live however he wanted because Jesus' blood had covered him. He was living with his stepmother, which I think to most of us sounds nasty, but that was the relationship he was in. And the church was like, well, hey, he's free in Christ. And Paul says, you are not to associate with people like that. Let me turn there. Because it's easy to generalize, but I want you to hear this list that Paul pours forth in 1 Corinthians 5. Starting in verse 9, if you've turned there. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And that's where our church, the church today in our culture wants to stop and say, see, we can't socialize with these people because they are immoral. Right? We have to cast them away. We can't associate with them. They're ruining our culture, changing our laws. But he, said, he goes on, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, of Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or idolatry, reviler, drunkard, swindler. Don't even eat with such people. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We are called to judge each other and hold each other to this accountable, hold each other accountable to this standard that Paul sets. We are to help each other grow in this pursuit of Christ. I am convinced that if the church in our culture spent as much time addressing the sins of the church as it spends addressing the sins of the culture, our culture would look completely different. The problem is we have a church full of people that look the same as the people in the world, but we're telling the world that they're wrong and the world's looking at us going, you don't look any different. Why would I listen to you when you look exactly the same way? I'll confess. I'm going to make a really big judgmental confession for a moment. Lindsay looked nervous when I said that. <laughs> there have been numerous times, when you have kids and they're little, everybody's a parenting expert. Have you noticed that? I'll be honest, I really struggle when people have that really, well, if that were my kid, I would do this attitude, but their kids don't talk to them, their kids don't want anything to do with them, and their kids want nothing to do with Jesus. It makes me really hard, it makes it hard for me not to say, okay, well, I will do the opposite of what you did then. Because I don't want that. I want a relationship with my kids. But that's the exact same thing we see in the church. The church is telling the culture, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But we are living the exact 
same way. And Paul says not to associate, to purge that evil from among us, that we are to judge the church. It is time that the church quits quoting, judge not lest ye be judged toward each other. Paul tells us, judge each other so that you can purge the evil and you can look like Christ and you can reach the world around you. This is why it stepped on my toes. Because as I look at this standard that Paul has set, I realize how far and how often I fall short. Because often what happens is we're like the rich young ruler. And we say, well, hey, I've never done this, 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 or this. And Jesus says, love people. And we walk away sad because we're full of bitterness and anger. A life with Jesus at the center reflects his love. When we focus on Christ and push on to finish the race, conforming to his image, we naturally put those traits listed in verses 5 through 11 to death, and we are naturally clothed with these new traits. And I think when we truly love people, that agape, gut it out, stick it through it, love, these traits are present in our lives. And then we can do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God through that, keeping his name holy. I want to make that connection real quick. In verse 17, whatever you do, do in the name of Christ, to the glory of God the Father. Remember the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. If we are to do everything in the name of God, we can't keep his name holy and do things that shame that name. Live in ways that are inconsistent with our faith. A life with Jesus at the center reflects his love. And when we pursue his love, I think those other traits and qualities join in. And when we pursue his love, we have an opportunity to look different than the world and to reach the world for Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your patience. I thank you that you loved us enough to choose us, to consider us beloved, and to make us holy. I pray that you would continue the work of sanctification in our lives. Give us the strength to pursue holiness. Give us the strength and the desire to help each other. May we understand that you have called us to call each other out on the sin that we continue to manifest over and over and over. May we be willing to have those hard conversations. May we be willing to listen to those hard conversations. Not for our sake, but for yours. May we not be people who acknowledge you with our lips and walk out the door and deny you by our lifestyles pushing people further and further away from Christ. I pray that our lifestyles would match what we say we believe and that as a result, you would be glorified and that we could get as many people to join us glorifying you on the day when Jesus returns. That's in his name we pray, amen.